You can turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 16. I want to briefly remind you where we find ourselves this morning. Paul has just begun his second missionary journey. He's done so without Barnabas. We saw their disagreement last week, Paul and Barnabas, between whether or not to bring John Mark with them. And we saw they became angry, Paul and Barnabas. They became so angry that they split up and they went their separate ways. And no doubt, there's still lingering grief and pain for both of these men. Paul and Barnabas had that kind of foxhole relationship. I mean, they'd been through many near-death experiences, and now to go their separate ways would not have been easy. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to his home island of Cyprus, and Paul and Silas stay on land and head kind of north by northwest back to Galatia. And they're going to visit all the churches that had been planted on their previous journey. We're only looking at five verses today. Um, I think my initial plan a year ago when we started Acts was to do Acts in 45 sermons. I think this is number 42 and we're in chapter 16. So thank you for your patience. Doing five verses today. And we're going to see... Paul returned to Derby and Lystra, the two cities that were visited back in Acts 14. Lystra was especially memorable because that's where Paul was stoned and nearly killed. Rocks were thrown at his body until they supposed he was dead and then dragged his body out of town, his unconscious body, and threw him into a garbage dump. Uh, There's another instance of stoning earlier in Acts, back in chapter 7, when Stephen is stoned. Paul was in the crowd. And even though, at the time, Paul approved of Stephen's execution, Stephen's death made a massive impact on Paul's life. Well, I say that because today we're going to meet another... uh, Man, a young man who was profoundly impacted by Paul's suffering. A young man, uh, we are not told if he was in the crowd participating with the stoning or approved of Paul's stoning, but he was in Lystra. And if he didn't witness the stoning, he would have received firsthand testimony of it. And in the Lord's kindness, this young man was brought to saving faith in Christ. And I mentioned that this young man was profoundly impacted by Paul's suffering. I need to add that Paul's life from here on out and Paul's ministry will be, again, profoundly impacted by this young man. Uh, Listen to what Paul says of him in Philippians 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be 
genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. That's who we're meeting today. Timothy, who will join Paul and Silas. As we saw in that Philippian passage, he will become Paul's child in the faith. Paul will be a spiritual father. And Timothy will play a prominent role in Paul's ministry. And so even though Paul is going to be returning to a city where he was nearly killed for the sake of Christ, and even though he's still, I'm sure, reeling from this bitter parting with Barnabas, the Lord is still working and he is still building his church and showering goodness on his people. Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, said this, and I think this could be a a wonderful word for all of us to remember. God loves to bring joy and hope during times of trial. Ever since Golgotha, Christianity has transmuted hardship and failure into holiness and honor to God. Ever since the cross, Christianity has transmuted hardship and failure into holiness and honor to God. Before we go further and look at and meet Timothy, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you bless the preaching of your word? We know that faith comes by hearing So would you give your people ears to hear this morning? Would you be among us that I would not be just some clanging cymbal or a bag of hot air, but through this broken vessel, your people would be fed and cared for. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read our text. Acts chapter 16, just verses 1 through 5. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in number, uh, strengthened in the faith, And they increased in numbers daily. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
I really just have one point this morning. Um, one point, and it's uh, the reason Timothy is circumcised and uh, the applications of that. So that's really all we're looking at uh, this morning. But we meet Timothy. Paul and Silas are in Lystra. Uh, they discover, they're introduced to a brilliant young believer named Timothy. Luke tells us that he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, we don't know really anything else about Timothy's father. Luke, using the word was, saying he was a Greek, kind of gives the impression that maybe his father was deceased. We, we do not know. We do know more about uh, the women in his life. In 2 Timothy, Paul provides more detail for us. He, he had a mother named Eunice and a grandmother named Lois. Both women were devout, pious Jews, and these are the people who taught Timothy uh, the Scriptures from an early age. And they also had been converted to Christianity. So that's his family. And then we're told that among his church family, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. I think we see that in verse 2. And if you look in, in my Bible, maybe in yours as well, after the word brothers, there's a citation there. If you follow that citation, it says brothers and sisters. It's, Luke is simply saying that everyone in the church... Brothers and sisters, everyone thought highly of Timothy. He, he wasn't only beloved by the men, but also the women. Everyone spoke well of this young man. And Luke tells us that Paul wants Timothy to accompany him and Silas. He's found this incredibly gifted young man with a good reputation, a godly character, and he wants Timothy to join them. And Timothy does. There's no hesitation, no indecision. He is all in. He even submits uh, to what may seem to us as a confusing requirement that Paul puts on him. That he has to be circumcised. Timothy was not circumcised, obviously. He had not received the sign of the covenant that all male Jews were given On the eighth day after birth, his mother was Jewish, but his father was a Greek, a Gentile, and so this never happened. And Paul's plan, if Timothy joins them, is, or even if he doesn't, his plan is to go and evangelize Jews, to be in synagogues, to be in Jewish homes, to be eating around Jewish tables. And in order for that to happen... Timothy has got to be circumcised. Well, I said it's a bit confusing because, I mean, what was the previous chapter? Acts 15 was the Jerusalem Council. had this huge controversy where you had conservative Jewish Christians who would be known as Judaizers who believed that Gentile converts must become Jews in order to be saved. All these new Gentiles are coming to Christ and these 
Jewish Christians, these Judaizers are saying, if you want to really be saved, you have to keep the law of Moses. And you have to be circumcised. So this was a big, big ordeal. There was a council that was called, and the church responded in Acts 15 and said, no, Gentile Christians do not have to become Jews in order to be saved. They don't have to keep the law of Moses in order to be accepted. Gentile converts, as with all converts, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing to be added. Salvation is of the Lord. It is all grace. It's not the result of any works, so that there is nothing the believer can boast in except the Lord Jesus. And Paul was the champion of this message. This is the hill he dies on, he would die on. You see this in his letter to the Galatians. Forcing circumcision for right standing before God was an issue where there would be no compromise because it struck at the heart of the gospel. So if Paul is a huge champion of this, why does he make Timothy get circumcised? Clearly, salvation was not in view. If it had been, things would have been different. If someone had said, Timothy must be circumcised in order to be saved, I can promise you Paul would have said, okay, we aren't doing this. That's not the issue. Timothy is already a believer. He's described as a disciple. He's one who's been brought to saving faith. He has received mercy. He has peace with God on account of the work of Christ. He is thought of well by his fellow brothers and sisters in the church. This is something else. You remember Timothy's mother was Jewish. And so in the minds of other Jews, Timothy was a Jew. But he was an uncircumcised Jew. And that truth would have caused continual offense to the very people that Paul and Silas and Timothy were attempting to reach. And so in order for the door to be open, in order for Timothy to gain an audience... In order for him to have the opportunity to be heard, he has to be circumcised. And so he willingly removes this stumbling block that would have proved a hindrance to Jewish ears. He's just becoming more winsome. And Calvin reinforces this. He says, quote, Luke clearly says that Timothy was not circumcised because it was necessary or because circumcision still had any religious significance, but so that Paul might avoid giving offense. The circumcision of Timothy was no sacrament, as was that of Abraham and his descendants, but it was merely a ceremony that fostered love. End quote. That's what this is. And Timothy was willing to undergo this ceremony in order to have the opportunity to speak 
the words of life to Jews and by God's grace see them come to faith. Now, just for a moment, is this our natural response when it comes to reaching people? And all churches might be guilty of this, but we definitely are as well, I would say. What I'm talking about, what I think is more common for us, is to say, if they want to be a part of what we are doing, then they have to change. Our theology is solid. Our worship is solid. Our community of believers is solid. We have our freedoms in Christ, and they are free to join us. We would like for them to join us. They're invited to join us. But we aren't changing. They have to change. Now, of course, when it comes to gospel issues, those first-tier issues of who is Jesus Christ, what has he done, how is the sinner saved, what commands does God's word place upon us, what things are sinful, those are things that we cannot change. We cannot compromise on at all. We can give no ground there. We can't, you know, just toss those overboard so that our message would be more palatable to the unbelieving world. But as we hold firmly to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, how can we be more winsome? How might we win more ears, win an audience? to speak to someone about the Lord Jesus. Uh, To use Paul's language, how might we be all things to all people that by all means we might save some? That's the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9. I'll, I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being myself outside the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I want to give you an extended illustration of what I believe that looks like. Of what it looks like in a more modern context. Not entirely modern, but a more 
modern context than the first century church of what it looks like to become all things to all people that they might be reached. I want to point you to one of the greats from church history, a man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was an English missionary in China. He's one of the most important missionaries to China, especially in the 19th century. He founded the China Inland Mission in 1865, so that gives you time frame of his life. Initially, he went to China as a medical missionary. He believed that inroads for the gospel could be opened through the healing of the sick. You know, if you care for the ailing, uh, the hope is that um, those who were sick and their families would be primed and ready uh, to hear and accept Christ. But he found that simply showing up as a medical missionary wasn't enough, and they weren't seeing the results they were expecting, and they weren't seeing the openness they were expecting. The problem was, even though they were medical missionaries, they were foreign physicians bringing a foreign gospel. They were Englishmen in China who dressed and lived and ate like Englishmen in China. And that foreignness led to a lot of skepticism among the Chinese. Taylor himself wrote, he said, There is perhaps no country in the world in which religious toleration is carried to so great an extent as in China. Think about China today, that is, that is amazing. But he says, the only objection that prince or people have to Christianity is that it is a foreign religion and that its tendencies are to approximate believers to foreign nations. So this is the objection. Your religion is foreign and the goal of your religion, they believed, was to draw people away from China and draw their loyalties away from China. The objective being... Make the people less Chinese and make them more English. Or make them more European. If that's the sentiment, it's obviously going to make work for missionaries difficult. So Hudson Taylor knew that and he found a way. Without compromising the gospel... Without syncretism. You know what syncretism is. It would be taking Christianity and then mixing it with a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of uh, Taoism and Confucianism just all together and just kind of blend it. He did not do that. And yet he won the trust of the people and many came to Christ. Historian Ruth Tucker commented on Hudson Taylor saying, No other missionary in the 19 centuries since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. What was that systematized plan of evangelism? 
made no concessions when it came to being a Christian, but in everything else, his goal was to become as Chinese as possible. Taylor wrote this, We wish to see Christian Chinese, true Christians, but nevertheless true Chinese in every sense of the word. We wish to see churches and Christian Chinese presided over by pastors and officers of their own countrymen, worshiping the true God in the land of their fathers, in the costume of their fathers, in their own tongue wherein they were born, and in edifices of a thoroughly Chinese style of architecture. He's saying we want true Chinese and we want them to be shepherded by Chinese and we want them to speak in Chinese and we want them to dress Chinese and to gather as a church in a Chinese uh, building, uh, the architecture style of the Chinese. How would this be accomplished? Taylor continues. He says, if we really desire to see the Chinese such as we have described, let us, as far as possible, set before them a correct example. Let us, in everything unsinful, become Chinese, that by all things we may save some. Let us adopt their costume, acquire their language, study to imitate their habits, and approximate to their diet as far as health and constitution will allow. Let us live in their homes, making no unnecessary alterations in external appearance, and only so far modifying internal arrangements as attention to health and efficiency for work will absolutely require. I'm going to go through that. Becoming Chinese. Hudson Taylor and his missionaries learned the languages that the people spoke. They had to be able to read and speak and write the native language. They began to eat Chinese food using Chinese dishes and Chinese utensils. They came and lived among the Chinese in Chinese neighborhoods and Chinese houses. Instead of living in the English settlements on the coast where they could enjoy European accommodations, they went inland and dwelt with the people. They began to observe Chinese customs and etiquette. They learned about the ceremonies and rituals that surrounded birth and marriages and death. They observed festivals. They learned Chinese history. They were aware of the curriculum taught in Chinese schools. The English missionaries even refused protection from soldiers at the British consulate. So those British soldiers on the ground that could have protected them, they refused protection. They even got the Chinese haircut of the day. I believe it was shaved in the front. They'd shave the front. And then in the back, there was this long braided uh, pigtail. They received that haircut. They even wore Chinese clothing. Dressed up like Europeans, they would have stuck out. But they they dressed like Chinese. And and Hudson Taylor said that dressed like Chinese, they 
attracted a lot less attention, and so their words were able to attract more. They wanted to approach the Chinese on their own terms, and everyone, all of his colleagues, thought he had lost his mind. Just imagine the first time one of his British peers saw Hudson Taylor with his shaved head and braided hair. They thought he was crazy. And even, you remember, they initially came as medical missionaries. Hudson Taylor was trained at the Royal College of Surgeons in England, and yet he did not come to China, and he was not dismissive of elements of Chinese medicine. He didn't view Chinese medicine as backwards. Instead, rather, he developed a respect for their healing practices. All this to say, In Hudson Taylor, we have a man who demonstrated a profound respect for the cultural heritage of the people to whom he was ministering, the people to whom he was living among. And he did that while also laboring with all his might that the Chinese might turn from their sins and in faith come to the Lord Jesus And rest upon him alone for their salvation. Now, closing question. Why would Paul do this? Require Timothy to get circumcised. Why would Hudson Taylor do this? Better way to ask the question, are they just being pragmatic? Are they just saying, you know... Seems like a good idea. We're just going to see if this works. And we're just going to get as far as we can. And when this doesn't work, we'll just find another strategy. Is that it? You know, just, you know, Hudson Taylor. Well, I went to the local market, got some Chinese clothes, got a haircut. The following Sunday, we had several professions of faith. So we're just going to keep following this ministry model as long as it'll work. They're just being pragmatic. I don't believe so. I think Hudson Taylor was simply imitating the Lord Jesus. What he did for the Chinese is a picture of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Remember, he was a foreigner an outsider who came from heaven and took on flesh and dwelt among his people and brought light into a dark world. Our Lord took to himself a true body and was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he was born into a sinful, fallen world, yet he was not sinful or fallen. And he, the creator, ate our food. He ate bread and fish, and he drank wine. And he, the king of kings, clothed himself in the garb of a Jewish peasant. And he didn't dwell in the temple in the Holy of Holies where it would have been entirely appropriate 
uh, for him to dwell. But he was raised in the town of Nazareth. You know, a, a town that all the other towns look down on and say, oh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he attended marriages. He observed festivals. He even refused the military protection that was his. He says in Matthew 26, when he's arrested in in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I could appeal to my Father in heaven and immediately be sent 12 legions of angels. And yet he doesn't. Why does he do all this? Our larger catechism states, for our sakes, he emptied himself of his glory and took upon himself the form of a servant in his conception and birth and life and death and after his death until his resurrection. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And as our high priest, he would make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation, think of a, this is the illustration I remember from seminary. Think of a sponge just absorbing all of the water. Propitiation is absorbing the wrath of God. That's what the Lord Jesus has done for his people. The writer says, again in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In Hebrews chapter 5, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I believe that's the example Paul is following, the example Timothy is following, the example Hudson Taylor followed among the Chinese, the example of our Lord who came and dwelt with his people, who took on flesh like us, took on human nature, who suffered and became the source of eternal salvation. So just a thought to leave with. How might we believers follow that same example? How might we be winsome and offend less to gain more ears, to have more opportunities to share the words of life with those who are outside of the covenant community? I'm obviously not calling you to compromise your faith and what you believe. I'm not giving license to sin. 
The Lord has providentially placed you where you are. And so for the sake of the gospel, how might you become all things to all people that by all means you might save some? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you use uh, your people? Would you use your people as a means of sowing light where there is darkness? Sowing seeds of the gospel where there is unbelief? Father, we know that a gentle tongue turns away wrath. We know that a a, uh, a kind word is like honey on the lips. Father, we uh, ask that you would help us to be gentle and winsome. Uh, not, not that we would compromise or, or, or give in uh, to the unbelieving world, but Father, that we would be approachable. And that in us, they would see the same gentle spirit that was descriptive of our Lord Jesus. Where sinners felt as though they could approach him and reach out and touch his cloak or speak to him or just begin washing his feet. Father, may it be so. Instead of having to demonstrate to everyone that we are right, Father, would you assist us in finding ways that we might have more ears to tell of the goodness and grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.